and is a continuation of the first. It's chapter 5 of the Gospel according to Luke. Beginning at verse 1, we're still reading from the New International Version. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats. They were left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore, and then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed Jesus. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. You will remember, by the way, let me, you will remember made me think I was forgetting something. Uh, the couple's study will not meet tonight so that all may attend the film at Gaither tonight, Johnny. They will meet again next Sunday at 5 p.m. at the home of Chris and Charlie Lance. I'm glad I didn't forget that announcement. I hope you'll go see this film tonight about Johnny Erickson. It'll be a great blessing uh, to you. Now then, I want to get back to the gospel according to Luke. We have been uh, thinking these last few weeks, even before Christmas, about Luke's portrayal of the life of our Lord. And uh, he, you remember in the very preface to his friend Theophilus, uh, the lover of God, begins to tell him that he has some first-hand information which he wishes to pass along and some information from other witnesses about who Jesus is and what he came to do. You will remember that uh, Luke tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist and gives a rather full account of that ministry and preaching of John the Baptist. Luke also is the one who gives us such vivid description of the temptation of our Lord. How there, when the Lord was tempted in the wilderness, uh, tempted along the lines that it would have been that which was most important to him, the carrying out of his Father's will to deviate from his Father's will and listen to the voice of the devil. The voice spoke to him. That's one of the reasons that we pray so earnestly in the Lord's Prayer Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the temptation. Well, you will remember that the, the witness of that uh, uh, voice of the devil speaking to Jesus is really a witness to Christ and who he is. The devil has never learned not to overplay his hand. So he has to say, If thou be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If thou be the Son of God, then 
Oh, why don't you let me give you all the kingdoms of the world? He puts in a lie. He doesn't have them to give. And then he says uh, to Jesus, if you're the son of God, why don't you go up to the pinnacle of the temple, cast yourself down, and people will believe you. And by the way, there's scriptural support for the fact that you will be caught by the angels lest you uh, dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus will not do anything apart from the will of his father each time he rebukes Satan with scripture. And now then, we pick up our lesson today in the fourth chapter of the gospel according to Luke. You, re you remember last week we had seen Jesus go into Nazareth, his hometown. That's why I picked that Christmas song, Sing a Song of Nazareth, where this boy grew up, where he worked in a carpenter shop, and he comes back to his own village, where they spoke with his own country dialect and where there would be expected of him that he would grant certain privileges because of the connections he had there, and that his family would be given certain privileges. And if you study the life of Jesus, you'll see that the whole world for him is Nazareth, and that his dialect will not be restricted to Galilee, but that there will be no special privileges for special connections, but that he will open to all of us the way of salvation. And so in his sight, the humblest peasant in India, the humblest peon in all of South America, the humblest person any place in the world, the little coolie in China, they're all precious in Jesus' sight. And he speaks their dialect too. And he wants them to be one unto himself. And so he teaches us that very important lesson there. His lesson, by the way, didn't go over at all with his people in his home synagogue in Nazareth. They were furious because of their prejudice against people of other races and rose up to uh, seek to cast him off uh, the brow of a cliff that was nearby. Um, and Jesus passed through their midst. They were all angry. He went through their midst. Uh, and went away from Nazareth. Now he goes down to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he speaks in the synagogue. And it, there again, we see the witness of Satan. And in the synagogue, the synagogue, by the way, is very important uh, to the history of our of faith because it's a place of learning. Your coming here to church is very, very important because it ought to be a place where the recitation of the creed, where prayer seeing each other together, uh, where these things all help us to grow in our faith. We have the Lord's day, the Lord's book, the Lord's word, the great power of the Holy Spirit to speak to us, the great hymns of the past to help us. And so he goes to, to the synagogue where people have come together to worship. And there in the synagogue, I've often wondered what I'd do if someone stood up some Sunday in church and cried out with a loud voice uh, some strange thing. Well, uh, demons have a way of speaking with weird voices when they possess people. Let me say this about uh, demons at this point. Uh, demonic activity is very plain uh, in the New Testament and is very active in the time of our Lord's ministry. There are two errors that people make that are opposite but equal errors. There is an error that says there is no such thing as demon. To say that is to go in flat contradiction of the plain teaching of Scripture. Because if, 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 birds, if words can communicate truth, we are taught that there are demons 
in Scripture. Now then, the other era which C.S. Lewis stresses is the idea that demons are everywhere. I told our prayer meeting group the other night about some strange uh, group. This uh, uh, minister's wife told me the other day about some lady that was casting the calories out of cookies. <laughs> Boy, how would you like to do that? Uh, cast the calories out of cookies. Well, you can get the demon of the post-nasal drip. I felt like I had it the other day. Uh, but uh, uh, you can get all kinds and sorts of demons. That's going to an idiot extreme the other way. Uh, it's sort of like wartime when you hear spy stories. You don't rule out the possibility, but you don't believe everything you hear. And then you'll be pretty safe about it. But where it speaks in Scripture, you best take it. There's only three options that are given you. Either Jesus uh, accommodated himself to the superstition of the time and didn't know any better, or he knew better and just for their sakes didn't tell them the truth, or what's spoken there is the truth. The best of those three options is that what's spoken here is the truth. There are demonic activities. So this demon cries out, uh, giving testimony to who Christ is. It's interesting the Lord doesn't accept the testimony of the devil. I know who thou art, this demon says. Thou art the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him uh, in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. They were all amazed and spake among themselves, What a word is this? For with authority, that's authority like you would sign a, a name that would let someone free from something, and power, that's like dynamite that blows something up. With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. And he arose out of the synagogue, and he entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, a high fever we read in the NIV. This is Dr. Luke writing, and so he tells us what kind of fever it is. It's a very high fever. And they besought him for her, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Now then, that beautiful anthem, which uh, Arlen sung a moment ago, one of our hymns in the hymn book, at even ere the sun was set, the sick old Lord around thee lay, oh, in what divers pains they met, and with what joy they went away. That gets its... Uh, inspiration from these words. Now, when the sun was setting, all that had any that were sick with divers' diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. I've often wished that I were an artist and could paint those beautiful tints at sunset with all manner of sickness and illness and demon-possessed people brought to Jesus, and he heals them. He heals them. And his touch has not lost its ancient power. No word from thee can fruitless fall. Here in this solemn morning hour today, and in thy mercy, heal us all. So we have a right to continue to pray for his healing. And uh, then after this, we read that he departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed with him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach. I must proclaim the kingdom of God. I must proclaim God's reign. 
to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. He went from synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming the reign of God. This is what it's meant. There should be a difference in your life from having come under the preaching of the word of God this morning. It ought to make a difference in the way you treat people during the course of the week. It ought to make a difference in the way uh, you make judgments and values and the things that you say. It ought to show that your life is reigned over and ruled by the one whose right it is to reign. I remember a blessed saint of God who was a member of this congregation, Miss Isabel Arnold, who loved this little prayer room. I remember Miss Arnold telling me when she was way up in her 90s that she believed that Billy Graham actually got his anointing for his worldwide ministry because of prayers that were made in that prayer room. Miss Arnold, she was a niece of Stonewall Jackson, lived way up into her 90s. I saw that precious lady when she was dying in a county poor farm, but still with a regal dignity about her that and a peacefulness inside and a great spirit uh, that I admired so much. That woman knew the power of preaching, the power of proclaiming the word of God when it was backed up by prayer. And so she prayed for preachers. Do you pray for your preacher? If anything good comes, it's because you pray for him. He is to be a proclaimer of the word of God, and that word has authority. And that word has power. And so Jesus preached in all the synagogues of Galilee. Now then, he goes on from this place and passes uh, to a, another area and people pressed in to hear him. That means a huge crowd of people came down close to a lake. And uh, he saw two ships standing by the lake. And the fishermen were gone out of the uh, two little boats. And uh, they were mending their nets. And he entered into one of the boats, the one that probably belonged to Simon Peter. He entered into Simon's boat and taught the people. Uh, you have to get something of the picture here. Uh, mending their nets means making their nets fit. They had been fishing all night long because that was the time in which you fished. They had nets that were made of fine mesh, and they would fling these nets out to encompass a shoal of fish uh, and bring them in. But they, the night time was the best time for fishing. I remember once many years ago, I went there to Galilee. Oh, how I loved the Lake of Galilee. That's one of the things they couldn't build a church over. And I was so glad. I think that every pilgrim's first impulse when he goes to the Holy Land is to get some dynamite and start blowing up churches. They got them over everything that you go to. And, but the Lake of Galilee, they couldn't build one over and I, I saw those fisher folk out there throwing their nets and catching fish and realized that it must have been much the same way. Now, to catch those fish, uh, they had worked all this night, we know from a later word that Luke gives us, and they hadn't caught a thing. And uh, so they were very patiently and painfully, I might add, going through their nets and trying to get out all of the tangles and lay them out into the sun to dry them. And I expect they were listening to Jesus at the same time because he was preaching a long time to the crowds of people that were gathered there and they were all making their nets out. And uh, uh, it may have been that Jesus timed his sermon so that 
it finished at just the time when they had finally finished getting their nets all unrolled and put right uh, for the night's work. Maybe Peter was thinking, well, I fished all night, didn't catch anything, I'm tired. We got these nets straightened out now. I've heard these good things that he said. I'm going to go home after a while and get something to eat, sleep a little bit, then I'll hit it again tonight. Maybe we'll catch something tonight. But just as he finished, it says here, and when he left speaking, he said to Simon, he hadn't called him Peter yet, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft, for a catch of fish. Now, Peter is the most lovable person to me in all of the New Testament. Boy, oh boy, he is just like you and just like I would be. Uh, he, he has these wonderful dialogues with Jesus. Peter argues with him. He just got through folding these nets. It took him a long time to get those things straightened out. And he listened to this speech. And then Jesus said, launch out into the deep and cast out your, for a catch. And he said, huh? And, and, and uh, uh, then he realized what Jesus had said. And he said, listen, Master, you're from Nazareth. We grew up here in Galilee. We know that you know all about chisels and saws and hammers and planes, but you are a carpenter. We are fishermen. And then he looked at Jesus and said, but if you say cast out the nets, we'll cast out the nets. But I still don't like it. And out, <laughs> out they went. And uh, he casts out the nets. And then they encompass a great heavy a catch of fish. And this is our Lord meeting Peter where Peter can understand. He knows about fishing. He didn't know about medicine like Dr. Luke and about that high fever that his mother-in-law had. He wasn't impressed when she got healed. And uh, he knows about these other people, all the unclean spirits. He knows these other miracles. But boy, this is really a miracle here to him, this big catch of fish. He beat him at his own game, caught all these fish. And when these fish were caught, uh, Peter uh, uh, saw this great catch of fish, and they had to beckon to their partners. They never caught that many fish in their life to come and help them. The nets were breaking, and they had to the, get the fish over into the boats, and the little boats were beginning to go down deep into the water because of the weight of the fish. And when Peter saw what it was, happening now. He identified this, and he fell down at the knees of Jesus. He, he fell on his knees. Peter fell on his knees. And he had a sense of his own unworthiness and his sin. And he said, Oh, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He'd heard his sermon. He knew that he had claimed that passage from Isaiah about healing uh, the blind and about releasing the captives and preaching the acceptable year of the Lord. But now it's all personal. And he feels his own unworthiness because of the great holiness of Jesus. And he is humbled by his presence and says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. There's one thing about Peter. When he didn't have anything to say, he always said something. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord didn't answer his prayer. 
and depart from him. But the Lord wanted him. He can use a person who humbles himself in this way, and Peter had humbled himself, and he was just ready for him to use. When you recognize your need of him, then he can, he can really speak to you, and he can really use you. He was astonished in all that were with him at the catch of fishes that they had taken. And so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And if you think fish are slippery and hard to catch, <laughs> you try to catch men. <laughs> you have to be very patient and you have to be very skillful. Now that I'm going to close by giving you an illustration. This is a book called A Severe Mercy. Some of you may have read it. It's by, I think I'm saying his name correctly, by Sheldon Van Auken from Lynchburg, Virginia. And it includes 18 previously unpublished letters by C.S. Lewis, who was a remarkable fisher of men for Jesus Christ. You know who C.S. Lewis was. He was the atheist until he was almost 40 years of age who knelt humbly and admitted that God was God and Jesus was who he claimed to be and became a Christian when he was a don, a, a, a teacher at Oxford University in England at Magdalen College. And then you know how C.S. Lewis began to witness for Christ? And then he wrote those wonderful books, the screw tape letters, which are letters from a junior devil to a senior devil asking for advice on how to trip up people who are prospective believers. And in this book, The Severe Mercy, you see how it's a beautiful love story, incredible love story. Uh, the people love each other so much it, it becomes really an idolatry. Um, this young couple uh, that the book is about uh, become so much in love with one another while he is a student at Yale University and she had been trying to go to a college up in New Jersey and they secretly got married in a thunderstorm, decided they would tell no one that they would be atheists and then World War II breaks out and they are together and their lives are just knit together in such an incredible fashion that everything they do, they do together, but they think Christians are particularly stupid for believing that uh, Jesus is the Son of God and who he claimed to be. And then uh, they get an opportunity to go over to England to study. Uh, he had received his master's degree from Yale and was teaching in Virginia, and then he got an opportunity to go to Oxford to take his doctorate, and it was while he was there in Oxford that he comes into an experience of coming, uh, his wife comes to Christ first and then he comes to Christ. To go back a little bit, they were at Pearl Harbor. He was in the Navy when Pearl Harbor was bombed. You can remember running out and shooting a, a 45 automatic pistol at the Japanese airplanes that came over bombing and how he felt. Then one night during the war, while he's on the deck of a carrier, he sees the shadow of a mast uh, from the ship uh, reflected by the moonlight in the water, and it makes a cross. And he thinks to himself, he's on duty and it's the middle of the night, and 
and you think a lot of strange things in a night watch like that and anything one day I've got to look into Christianity to see whether there's anything to it or not but then he puts it out of his mind and the years go by and they go overseas to Oxford and when they get to Oxford they are met by a wonderful Christian couple who are true believers in the Lord Jesus and they are deeply affected by seeing these Christians who are different uh, from what they thought Christians were. And then one afternoon, let, let me read this right quickly, one afternoon having strolled with a friend along the uh, iris, I was walking across the port meadow into Oxford and hearing the clinging of the church, ringing of the church bells in the distance. It led me to picture a church spire surmounted on a cross. Anyhow, into my mind, there came as it had done every now and then since those years ago, the memory of the shadow of that cross made by the destroyer's mast and yardarm, and my subsequent re resolve that someday I'd have another look at the case for Christianity. Perhaps now was the time to do it. The idea seemed less revolting than at other times when it had occurred, and of course Christianity couldn't possibly be true. A thought suggested, still, uh, uh, another thought pointed out that, it, that there was that resolve that I had made that night, and in order to be fair, I should at least look into it. My resolve came to the point that this was the time to do it. And so I swung about on my bicycle, nearly colliding with another Jesus man, that's Jesus College at Oxford, and went into Blackwell's bookstore. I've been in Blackwell's bookstore in Oxford. If you ever go in that bookstore, you'll know <laughs> this guy had to be led by the Lord. The, the books, <laughs> there's so many books in every place. Some while later, I, I arrived at Woodstock Flat, where he lived, with an armload of books on Christianity. And over tea, I told Davy, that's his beloved wife, of my thoughts and the effect of that uh, 13th century spire of St. Mary's, which had made a cross that reminded me of my promise. I've been thinking that we ought to know more and then she said, oh, good, I see that you've got some of C.S. Lewis's books. Thad and others are always talking about him. Who is he anyhow? They didn't know who he was. He is a don, I said, he's a don in one of the colleges, Magdalen. It says on this book, not theology, though, he's an English lit major. Very brilliant, I think. I read part of a debate he was having with some philosopher. I think I'll read this one first. It's on the miracles. Okay, she said, I'd like to read the screw tape letters. Someone told me that it was funny. <laughs> so she starts to read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Well, uh, I won't uh, continue at this point to go on, but except to say that through reading C.S. Lewis, she uh, begins to be set upon by the Holy Spirit and to realize that Christ is who he claimed to be. And he, writing about her later, says, Thus, though her mind too asked intellectual questions, questions to which answers were flooding in through our books, Christianity was offering consolation and assurance, and even absolution, that's forgiveness. It fell into her soul as the water of life, and one evening after a lively discussion of faith with Lou and Mary Ann, who were Christians, I asked Davy if she felt that she were any nearer to believing that Christ was God. She said, well, I think he might be. And I said that thinking he might be was not the same as believing that he was. 
She put this exchange in the journal, and then she wrote, quote, underneath, I kept wanting to say, I do believe, I do believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Then she added, quote, I owe this to C.S. Lewis, who has impressed me deeply with the necessity of Jesus to any thinking about God. She was on the brink, and then she leaped. Only two days later, she wrote, Today, crossing from one side of the room to the other, I lump together all that I am, all I fear, hate, love, and hope. And well, I did it. I committed my ways to God in Christ. She was alone when she took that walk across the room, and she told me when I came in an hour later. I was neither shocked nor astonished. It was though I had known that she was going to do something like that. I felt sort of gladness for her and told her so, but I felt a bit forlorn too. Perhaps there was some unformulated thought which would not have become born the light of day that she shouldn't have done this without me. I did not think about the implications for our future. Did I sense that I should follow her? A few nights later, after a rather gentle talk about Christianity, she went to bed, leaving me lying upon a sofa in front of the fire reading C.S. Lewis's Miracles. A half hour passed, and I let the book fall to the floor, switched off the lamp, and gazing into the glowing coals, I wondered with a strange mixture of hope and fear whether Christ might be in very truth my God. Suddenly I became aware that Davy, that's his wife whom he loved so much, was praying beside me. She had slipped into the room in her nightgown and knelt down by the sofa. I looked at that quiet figure for a few moments. I had never seen her pray in all my life. And then she spoke. When I was in bed, she said softly, it seemed to me that God was telling me to come to you. I have prayed to God to fulfill your soul. She paused a moment and then she whispered, Oh, my dearest, please believe. Moved almost to tears, I whispered back a broken whisper which she wrote in her journal. I whispered, Oh, I do believe. I was shaken by the affirmation that swept over me. She wrote that in the firelight I looked gentle and sweet like some medieval saint. And then we held one another tightly. Well, to make a long story short, she, they go back to Lynchburg, Virginia, where he teaches. And she is afflicted with some strange disease. And he loves her so much that he goes to the hospital every single day. And when they call him finally at 3 o'clock one morning to come to the hospital, that she's dying at only 33 years of age. He hopes that he'll drive off the road on the way to the hospital. He doesn't want to live without her. In fact, in their pagan days, they had even made a, a pact together of the gray goose. The gray goose is a goose that, when its mate is lost, uh, flies on alone and never takes another mate. And that's what they'd call their schooner, which they wanted to build. That if one of them died, they'd take it out to sea and the other one would sink it, a sort of suicide pact. She makes him break his promise to commit suicide. And then after her death, he goes into this terrible depression. All that he had believed seems shattered. You see, he's made a, a god out of their 
love for one another. And he writes a letter to C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, used to answer every letter that he got in longhand. Even little American children who wrote him a letter about his Narnia books would get a letter back written in longhand. And C.S. Lewis wrote him a letter, and he talks about their love for each other. One way or another, the thing had to die. That is their love. Perpetual springtime is not allowed. You were not cutting the wood of life according to the grain. There are various ways possible in which it could have died, though both the parties went on living. You have been treated with a severe mercy. You have been brought to see how true and how very frequent this is that you were jealous of God. So from us, your relationship with her, you have been led back to us and God. It remains now for you to go on to God and us. She was further along than you, and she can help you more where she is now than she could have done on earth. You must go on, and that is one of the many reasons why suicide is out of the question. Another is the absence of any ground for believing that death by that route would reunite you with her. Why should it? You might be digging an eternally unbridgeable chasm. Disobedience is not the way to get nearer to the obedient. I don't have time to read the list, but the severe mercy, this book worth reading, by the way, teaches you that God deals with us with a severe mercy that teaches us of our guilt and our sin so that he may relieve us of this burden by the victory which we have in the cross. Peter recognized Jesus as Messiah and Lord with that great catch of fish. I was born, that's one event that all of us have in common, but we can't remember that. But one day we will all die. And we do need to know Jesus Christ, who has conquered death. And we need to know that his cross has bought for us salvation. We need to bow twice, as Francis Schaeffer says, once admitting our need, and twice thanking God for meeting that need and recognizing him and acknowledging him as our Lord and Savior. We will omit the last hymn, the stand, and I'll pronounce the benediction. Oh God, our Father, the passage of Scripture that we've had and the thoughts that we've given expression to are far bigger than the time that we've had and the preacher's ability to explain. Some of it can't be explained anyway except by the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit applying your word to our hearts. If there's any person here who has not bowed twice, help that person now to bow once in acknowledging that need and twice in accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father 
and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.